Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Good to be with you all on this rainy, blustery Lord's Day morning. Turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our text this morning will be verses 26 through 30 as we think together about the theme of our sufficiency in Christ. Let's hear from the Lord here this morning, beginning at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him. Are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and redemption? That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I trust this morning that you all are familiar with this great work, which we call First Corinthians. But maybe just to help us... Uh, approach our text this morning, we might think what's in the backdrop of these words about Christ's sufficiency to this congregation. And one of the things that we know about this congregation is that though it was a very gifted congregation in terms of the outpouring of spiritual gifts and graces, it was also a congregation full of turmoil. And if your Bibles are open, you can see that, for example, in verse 10, where we read about the admonition of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly joined together in heart and mind. We begin to think about those divisions. We can see also that the Apostle Paul speaks of those from Chloe's house reporting unto him that there was strife and there were quarrels in the congregation. There were contentions. That means the people of God were being divided among one another over matters which were non-essential. So we would think, for instance, this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, how the Apostle Paul praises them for having knowledge, but then goes on to critique them for using this knowledge in a form of intellectual arrogance to abuse their Christian liberty in the matter of meat sacrifice to idols, for example, where those who thought of themselves as strong were engaging in activities which, though lawful, were a means of causing other Christians to stumble. We also have the assemblies, which were chaotic and disorderly, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 
We have problems with the observance of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. The list goes on and on. This is a congregation that was one which was well-gifted, but also full of great difficulty and division. And so as we come into the text, let's take that as our backdrop, and let's listen to how these words of verse 26 sort of just cut through the noise as the apostle begins to grab hold of their attention, saying unto the Corinthian congregation, you see your calling. The New American Standard, for example, says, consider your calling. And the point of it all, of course, is to remind the congregation that there's something absolutely spiritually dramatic and significant which stands behind their life in this congregation and all the strife that they're now experiencing. And that is the thing which stands behind them is this great moment of transition spiritually when they turn from the darkness of their sins and its bondage and corruption. And that moment when they were called effectually unto Jesus Christ and received every grace in them. In other words, what the apostle uh, is speaking about and the note which he strikes here is this reminder that they need to cultivate spiritual humility by dwelling on the knowledge of their sin in order that they might find their sufficiency in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think, first of all, about the believer's insufficiency. The believer's insufficiency. And notice here the Apostle Paul makes reference here to their calling. And the thing that he says about it is, Brethren, not many were wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, this isn't the first time that he references their calling, because you can look back in verse 9 of this very same chapter when he strikes the note of the faithfulness of God in that he called them into fellowship with Jesus Christ. But you know, people of God, this calling thing is pretty significant, isn't it? Uh, the Westminster Catechism uh, takes this vast theological concept of Christian calling and it boils it down into a couple of parts. And the first part in which it consists is the enlightening of the mind. We'll think about why that's important in a moment. But you see, this is a sovereign action of God through Christ in the power of the Spirit. He enlightens the mind, which was dark. The second aspect of this calling is the renewing of the will, which is bent entirely towards sin and corruption and evil. It is enslaved to demonic power before Christ. So you have these two massive spiritual things that happened to them in their calling, that their eyes were opened to see the truth and their wills were made pliable and given strength that they may reach out unto Christ. And so it's this huge spiritual event that happened in their life and, and made them what they are now in Christ that Paul reaches for. And it's interesting that the apostle doesn't just move on from verse 26. You see your calling to verse 30 where he describes the, the component and essential parts of what they are now in Christ. But he doesn't do that. 
As he references their calling, he begins to elaborate upon their insufficiency. These are spiritual categories, by the way. It doesn't seem that way at first, but they are. As we move more into the text, we'll be able to see. And if we don't quite see it, uh, as we work our way through verse 28, it should be clear by the time we get to verse 29 that Paul is thinking in terms of spiritual categories as he says, that no flesh may glory. But notice here what he refers to as he speaks of their calling He goes on to remind them of what they were outside of Christ as he says, not many wise according to the flesh. We could spend a lot of time on each of these, but this morning my uh, my aim is to just simply brush over them and think about them for a moment. And so he speaks of wisdom and what is the wisdom that we have out of Christ, but darkness. He refers according to the flesh, though. He says, according to human standards, not many were wise, not many were mighty. That is, cultural influencers, people of great popularity who leveraged that for broader cultural power. Not many noble, that is, not many of the ruling class and the societal elite. But then he goes on to verse 27 and 28 to to amplify this spiritual impoverishment by referring to things now which we begin to sense more closely to home are, are spiritual things. Notice here he says, but God has chosen the foolish. And I might just pause here to note that <clears throat> that word things here that we begin to read repeatedly throughout verse 27 and 28. Things. It's... Um, a a neuter term, grammatically. So it speaks of them as just mere objects. It's a very denigrating tone, as it were. And so he speaks here of foolish things, and the the Greek word is mora, for moron. God has chosen the foolish, not the educated elite and the sophisticated. He has chosen the weak, and that probably refers to physical limitations and capacities. He says he has chosen the base things, and it could go different ways, crude or immoral, or maybe even culturally inferior. But notice now in verse 28, it speaks of the despised. We might think here of the stepped-on class. But finally, notice the striking, humiliating note here at the very end of a whole list of terms as he says, the things which are not. The things which are not. The nothings, the nobodies. Notice here, the Apostle Paul is pulling no punches about the human condition outside of Christ. Spiritually, it's one of tremendous poverty. And the entire point of it, as we've already noted here in verse 29, is to make it emphatically clear on the grand scale that no one should glory before the Lord. Why has God chosen the weak and the foolish and the contemptible and the stepped on and the despised and the culturally inferior and the corrupt and the debased? Why? And the Apostle Paul is very clear to this Corinthian congregation, which is decimated by a strife due to pride and arrogance and intellectual elitism. The point of it all is to say that no one, 
would have the audacity to glory in the presence of God. One of the most important lessons we can learn and then keep relearning for the rest of our Christian life is for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves and not of works lest any man should boast. And the way we get there is the law. We had a profoundly important law reading this morning, though it was <clears throat> just a verse, think of the riches of spiritual insight and the implications of, of how we use the tongue, which is connected to the heart. This exercise we go through weekly in the church of reading the law, what's it for? Well, well, Paul is showing you what it's for. He, he didn't read the Ten Commandments here, but what he's done is read the implications of the law. Because when we're done reading the implications of the law, one of the things that we are to be impressed with is that's us. It's designed to impress upon us our spiritual poverty. What are you this morning? Wise. Mighty, noble, no, Paul says, we're in the class of the foolish, the weak, the base, the despised. But that's essential knowledge for us as Christians. And the reason it's essential knowledge for us as Christians is because there's no other way to grow in our understanding of Christ's grace and to know our weakness and our limitations and our failings in the Christian life. Heidelberg Catechism puts this so succinctly and simply. But it asks, why is it that we need to continue <clears throat> to know our sinful nature? Why is it that we need the law read every Lord's Day? And the answer is that we may more and more know our sinful nature. So that what? We will seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Jesus Christ. When I used to catechize people for membership, uh, one of the things I would continually seek to impress upon the minds of, of those <coughs> whom I catechized was that the, thank you, the Word of God consists of two parts. If you boil down what the Word of God is in its essence and totality, there's two parts. There's, there's the law and there's the gospel. And one of the things that we need to be persuaded of when we read the Word of God <clears throat> is that the law has a role in the life of the believer. And one of those roles is to continually press upon us our failure, the knowledge of our sin, in order that, as the Catechism says, we may the more earnestly seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Jesus Christ. People of God, when we hear the Apostle say to the Corinthian church divided by conflict and strife, you see your calling, brethren. It's a charge to us. 
How do you evaluate yourself this morning before God? Do you see yourself in this description of the not many wise, the the not many mighty, the not many noble, the foolish, the weak, the despised? All that is important now for us to lay hold of the central heart of Paul's proclamation to the church and the great need that we all have as believers is to continually find our sufficiency not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And so now, having brought them low, he lifts them up by grace in verse 30 as he moves to speak of Christ's total sufficiency. And we'll see here that it is a fourfold sufficiency, sufficiency, as he says, but of him ye are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And so those are the four elements of sufficiency. And let's think about them now just for a moment. Each one as we, as we turn to the word here in this explication of the sufficiency of Christ, the very first component is wisdom. And we think about that wisdom, we should think about its necessity. Paul describes the unbeliever, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. He says, henceforth don't walk as the Gentiles walk in, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding <clears throat> darkened. Vanity. The first thing that Paul says characterizes unbelieving thought is is vanity. It it can be defined in lots of different ways, but it it basically means useless. It's vapor-like. Of course, this runs contrary to all that the world tells us about its wisdom. The world is constantly assuring us how smart it is and how much more intellectually superior it is than Christ and biblical wisdom and truth. But spiritually speaking, the Apostle Paul says all of the knowledge that the unbeliever has is vanity. And then he goes on to speak of what's wrong with the unbelieving mind as he says darkened in understanding. Because that's what sin does. It takes this faculty which God has created and made good and it turns it dark. Darkened in understanding. And one reason it's darkened in understanding is the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that the God of this age has blinded our understanding. To appreciate the sufficiency of Jesus Christ this morning, people of God, we need to appreciate the darkness of our own understanding. And so instead of that, the Apostle Paul says, Christ has been made unto us wisdom. What is that wisdom? Well, there's all different kinds of ways to expound that wisdom, but one of the great texts, it seems to me, that gives us some insight into what that wisdom is all about and, and its source and its authority and its sufficiency 
is John 1.18, where we're told that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Think about the privilege of the position of the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, before all worlds. And here he is in the bosom of the Father, in the place of privilege and understanding and insight. And John says, that one who had a position like no other comes into this world to do what? To proclaim him. The word there is exegete to bring out from the Father and present to us the reason why the wisdom of Christ is superior and thoroughly and totally sufficient because it's his exhaustive knowledge of God due to his eternal position in the bosom of the Father. And so Christ is our wisdom. There's a great expression Psalm 36, 9. In your light, we see the light. In your light, we see the light. Because see what happens in our effectual calling, if we remember and go back to one of those essential components, is is that he enlightens the mind. And what that means is a severing of this dominance of demonic thought. It is, a, it, is a, it is a separation from that darkening influence of satanic ideology and, and corruption and filth. And, and what it does is replaces that with the wisdom of Christ, enlightening the mind. And so no longer being trapped in the futility of our darkened understanding, we see the world with new eyes. Isn't that a wonderful thing? when we step out of our homes in the morning and we look to the vastness of the twilight and the stars and the sky and the breaking forth of the dawn, what do you see? But you see that the heavens declare the glory of God, that it's his handiwork and that it is he who has made us and and not we ourselves and that our purpose and, and reason for living is not us. It's for the glory of God. In Christ, he makes everything new. He's made unto us wisdom. What else has he made unto us? He made unto us righteousness. And again, we can think about this in terms, first of all, of our necessity. How about Romans 3.10? There's none righteous, no, not one. You know, the world often presents to us people who are good, right? We often hear about people who just do wonderful things. And yet, that runs straight into the buzzsaw of Romans chapter 3. Perhaps the most humbling passage of Scripture with the catena of Old Testament texts as the Apostle moves from the sinner being thoroughly righteous and he moves literally from head to toe to show that, that every part of the human person is corrupted and defiled by sin. There's none righteous. And then he capstones that discussion in verse 19 
when he says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. You see, that's where the sufficiency of Christ comes in for us here. There's none righteous, no, not one. And yet the glory of the sufficiency of Christ is he has been made unto us righteousness. The law says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law says our failures make us guilty. The law says because of all of our violations of every small and tiny commandment in the word of God makes us subject to eternal condemnation and divine wrath. But the gospel says Christ has been made unto us righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism, if I may quote from it again, spells this out so well. It says, Although my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed or had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. You ever feel like that? Your conscience accuses you? Are there moments when you sit there and you think about how you've blown it in the Christian life? How you've not just sinned, but you've grievously sinned? And then at other times there are days when you feel the weight of this formulation here and am still prone always to all evil. That's far more than I'm touched by a, a proneness to wander. The catechism correctly summarizes even the battle and the challenge of the believer on a daily basis. I am still always prone to all evil. That's the challenge of the Christian life, isn't it? But what does it mean that Christ has been made righteousness to you? It means that his perfect righteousness has been stamped upon your account. And it's as if you had never committed nor had any sin. And as if you've accomplished all the obedience which Christ has committed for you. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed. Stamped to your account. Luther loved to speak of the alien righteousness of Christ, right? In our day, susceptible to misunderstanding, right? Not UFOs. A righteousness which is outside of me. And you know why Luther treasured that, that alien righteousness of Christ is because every time his understudy and disciple Philip Melanchthon would come to him and, and share with him how he had been engaging in introspection. He just kept finding all of this sin in his heart. Luther eventually would get weary of it and tell him to go sin boldly. 
You see, because he says the more you look inside of yourself to find peace and assurance before God, you won't find it. You can dig with the sharpest axe and pick and shovel you'd like in your soul. But what you will find when you continue to engage in this deep introspection is that you'll find that you've grievously sinned against the commandments of God. And the impulse to do evil is ever-present. And that's why Luther rejoiced in and gloried in this alien righteousness because in those moments when Satan would cause deep spiritual despair over these feelings of guilt... He would say, thank God for the alien righteousness of Christ. Because in my moments of greatest humiliation and sorrow over my sin, what I am entitled to do as a believer is to look out to that alien righteousness of Christ and see it in its perfection. It's wholly conformable to the divine law. People of God, you are entitled this morning to the deepest spiritual assurance because Christ is your righteousness. Because he has been made unto you not just wisdom, but righteousness. Paul adds here two more. We'll spend less time on each, but the next one is sanctification and You know, what a blessing that is to hear to our ears because this is what the gospel requires of us. We have to be very careful as much as we as Reformed people rejoice in and give thanks for justification by faith alone. We must at the same time, along with Scripture, highlight the fact that God also wills our sanctification. In other words, what God wills for us is a life of obedience to his commandments, and we can't tone that down either. There's a a grammatical form in our text, actually, which is a a tiny little particle which indicates to us uh, uh, that Paul is joining these two things and showing their inseparability. And this is what the Reformer called the double benefit of Christ that he is unto us. Not just justification and righteousness, but he is also unto us sanctification. In other words, that because we have been united to him, because the Spirit of God has placed in him, because the will within us has been renewed, because we have been given a new heart, that that old corrupt nature of ours... Well, it's been nailed to the cross and it's being made new. We are being made holy. But by virtue of our union with Christ, Him being made wisdom unto us, Paul makes it emphatically clear that holiness, that sanctification is ours now. Yes, we are working it out according to our ability through the grace of Jesus Christ, but positionally, that great holiness is ours. And so when your conscience grows weary over your lack of growth in the Christian life, you remind yourself this morning that Jesus is not only our wisdom and our righteousness, 
He's also our sanctification. And then finally, the apostle says he's redemption. Redemption. Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian Princeton theologian, whose commentaries on Romans and 1 Corinthians are what I would consider first rank and one that I always reach for, doesn't disappoint when he comes to this particular element, when he says that redemption, when we're referring to the reception of Christ's benefit, and it's being distinguished from justification and sanctification, just like it is here in our text, has a a different shade or nuance than it might have in other places in the New Testament. He says, when we come across it here in this catalog of terms which unpack the sufficiency of Christ, and he's already referred to the justification, he's already referred to the sanctification, he says the accent on the term now is that of victory. It's that of victory. It is the, the totality of Christ's triumph over sin. Meaning that final deliverance is infallibly and finally secured. And what does that mean this morning, people of God? Is that not a single believer will fall short of eternal life in the consummate kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's just another way of restating Romans 8.38 and 39. Nothing will separate us from the love of God and Christ. For through him we are more than conquerors because Christ has been made unto us redemption. How did it all happen? Well, this great sufficiency the apostle makes clear is not of our doing, as he says in verse 30, but of him. He sneaks in this formulation which is common throughout the New Testament of in Christ and union with Christ. And as we think about in Christ, we also think naturally at times of in Adam. And that's just the great problem of humanity, isn't it? That we're all in Adam. Every one of us who comes into the world attached to our mother by an umbilical cord comes here in Adam. And the problem with being in Adam is sin, condemnation, and death, as the Apostle repeatedly speaks of in Romans and 1 Corinthians. In Adam, all are dead. And so then, people of God, we need not just a helping hand. We need a sovereign hand. But of him. But of him. You are in Christ Jesus. And because of that sovereign hand of God lifting us up out of Adam and uniting us unto Jesus Christ, that sufficiency is ours. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As you step back from it and you turn it upside down and you shake it all around and you look at it, you find there's nothing lacking in it. There's no deficiency here. There's no grace left out here. It's an awful lot like 
Ephesians 1.3, that we have been blessed with Christ with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now let's remember who he preached this to. He preached this to a congregation full of sinners, to a people divided by strife, to a bunch of believers who were struggling in the Christian life. You see, the application of the preaching of the total and complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ is not the blessing that you get to achieve because you've done really well. No, it's for people who know this morning that they are struggling. And one of the things I was thinking of when I was preparing this text to preach and reflecting upon is how hard it is to be a Christian. Always facing trials and conflicts. Always having our affections drawn back into the world. Rarely seeing the progress in the Christian life that we would like. Feeling discouraged. Overwhelmed by our own weakness. You see, the apostle had to bring the Corinthians to to mind about these things. And then as he brought them to mind about these things, he set before them the joy of the believer. He has been made unto us. Past tense. It's not hypothetical. It's not tentative. It's not uncertain. It's not yet to remain to be finished. The Apostle Paul is very clear here in verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ. It's all yours. Your mind has been renewed by Christ's wisdom. Your sins have been pardoned by Christ's blood. Sin's power has been broken by Christ's holiness. Your future is written in stone, not in pencil. And that's because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I am struck by the power of Paul's logic. It tells us something very important about his pastoral heart. Because he digs into the depths and riches of theology. To bring it to bear upon the conscience and the mind and the soul of the believer. To persuade us this morning that we are given marvelous things that we are not in the slightest entitled to. But because God is loving and merciful and kind, he has poured out his grace upon us. And in Jesus Christ, he's given us everything we could never earn or possibly deserve. But the pathway to getting there and to accenting that and enjoying it is this. Consider ye your calling. Because the assurance of these things, the enjoyment of these things, the fruit which comes from these things comes from knowing first of all. How great my sin and misery is. 
Let me just leave you with this. It's a statement I think about very often. It's one of the richest statements about the believer in all of our confessional heritage. It comes from the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 29, as it speaks of the marks of the true believer. They fight against them, that is their sins, through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. As often as you do that, people of God, you will embrace, be assured of, and know your sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.